I am standing in the pulpit looking at a room full of empty chairs. I miss you. I really do. I miss worshiping together. I've heard you say the same thing over and over again these last three weeks. I look forward to the day. I can't wait for the day that we are in this sanctuary together again. But this morning, my spirits are not dampened. This is the Lord's day. This morning, I will speak to you personally, wherever you are, in your living room, in your kitchen, in your den. I will pretend as if I can see you where you are. And I know you're saying, I'm glad you can't. But I know this. God's word will go forth and it will not return to him void. So let's get at it. Let's read scripture. Let's read his word. And then we'll pray and ask him to bless and to teach. Matthew, our scriptures, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. It's Palm Sunday. What else would we read? I hope you have your Bibles and can read along with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we bow before you where we are. We feel isolated from each other, but we're really not. We bow before you right now, united in prayer as a church family. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests praying for ourselves, our families, our parents, our grandparents, our children, our grandchildren, 
We pray that you protect us. Build a hedge around us. Protect us from this horrible disease. We pray that you will spare your people. Spare this church. Father, you know what our individual needs are this morning. As in different homes, there are different worries about different needs. Oh, Father, you know them each one. We don't even have to name them. We pray that you would meet those needs. Our Father, bless us in all that we put our hands unto. Bless our president. Bless the medical leaders around him. Bless the political leaders around him. I pray that, Father, you will bless and cause them to make wise decisions. Keep us from the evil one. And now, as we open your word, we pray. We ask that you would teach us. We know that John Sartell cannot teach so it will make any difference in our lives. But we pray that we will hear your voice in our hearts. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak in power to each of us individually where we are for the glory of Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us minds that understand and give us hearts that yearn for your word. Give us hearts and minds that trust and believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The warrior king of heaven rides forth on a donkey. I've always liked playing a certain game that is about history. It goes like this. If you could choose and go back to any time in history, Where would you choose to go? What time? What place? What events would you like to witness firsthand? The object is to choose better than your opponent. I have several different people with whom I play this game from time to time. I've spent weeks and months planning what event I would choose the next time I face that specific opponent. One date that I would choose this Palm Sunday would be January 10, 49 B.C. The place would be the small river Rubicon on Italy's northern border. What happened there on that evening would change the course of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Julius Caesar was part of a triumphant that had been put in place by the Senate to lead the Republic of Rome. That triumphant was made up of Cassius and Pompey and Julius Caesar. Caesar had been in charge of conquering and ruling Gaul, this territory of a great expanse of territory that was north of the Italian border. He had been successful in conquering and ruling Gaul. 
he had done that magnificent. And his legions had become legendary. This was famous. His battles were famous in Rome. Now, the Roman Republic had a tradition that no general could bring his legions, could bring his army into Rome or even near Rome. The Senate was afraid that if they allowed a general to bring his army that close, that the general would use his army to conquer Rome, to become a dictator. Thus, they had ordered Julius Caesar to keep his legions north of the river Rubicon, to keep his legions north of that boundary. Now, here's the drama. Caesar had been thinking for some time about that order. Rome, there was much unrest in Rome, the city of Rome, during that time. He had made his decision. On the evening of January 10, 49 B.C., Julius Caesar, astride his great war horse, Genitor, crossed the Rubicon and led the 13th Legion toward the city of Rome. Legend has it that he said to those close to him, Iocta Elia est, the die is cast. The Romans had dice that they used in gambling, just as we do. Die was the singular of dice. With those words, Caesar was saying, the die has been thrown, the gamble has been made. We've crossed the boundary of no return. He was now in a civil war with Pompey in the city, in the Senate of Rome. Julius Caesar won. He conquered the armies of Pompey. Rome was no longer a republic. Julius Caesar became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. This morning, we read Matthew's record of the Messiah of Israel. Jesus the Christ, the Son of Man and Son of God, entering Jerusalem, proclaiming officially that he indeed was the Messiah of Israel. Since the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had constantly made that claim through his teaching and through his miracles. But now, like Caesar at the Rubicon, he was making the claim in a way he had not made it previously. He had entered Jerusalem many times, but never like this. He came to the capital riding a donkey. As Zechariah foretold the Messiah, that's how Zechariah said the Messiah would arrive. You'll know he's Messiah. He'll come on a donkey. Jesus came that day accepting the praise and worship of people as if he were God. He came as the Messiah of Israel, 
The die had been cast. There was no turning back. Now, from my youth, this scene has always puzzled me. Why? It does, it just does not seem that glorious. It does not seem powerfully auspicious. I mean, there, there's no army there. There is a crowd. They're loud. They shout and sing praise in their worship. They believe the Messiah has arrived and will take the throne and conquer and reign. Yet, you have to admit, the scene just does not live up to its billing. The triumphal entry. And worst of all, he's riding a donkey. Caesars, kings, conquerors do not ride donkeys. They ride great steeds with glorious names. They ride war horses. Even our parlance, even in our parlance, riding a donkey just doesn't carry weight with us. I grew up riding horses all over the hills and valleys of Drapers Valley, Virginia. My friend Paul Allison never called and said, John, I have a couple of donkeys. Let's go riding this afternoon. Can't you just see Bill Ray calling Russ and Ronald and Mike and saying, let's get our donkeys and ride in the field trials at Ames Plantation? Those three would think Bill had lost his mind. Why was Jesus on a donkey? We've talked about this before. I want to look at it more thoroughly this morning. Was it just to fill Zechariah's prophecy that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey? Was he just satisfying that requirement? No, the answer is much deeper than that. The answer as to why he was on the donkey riding into Jerusalem is given right there in Matthew's quote of Zechariah. It's right there in front of us. Look at it. Matthew 21.5 Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Humble is the key word in that verse. It's meant to be synonymous with donkey in that sentence. Humble, donkey, donkey, humble. Matthew and Zechariah both saw this as a statement of humility. Why did the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah of salvation, why was his choice? And it was a choice. It was a choice. This was by his design. Why was his choice of steeds a donkey? Why such humility? Why not a horse? That is what the kings of Jesus' day wrote. Now, one might say, well, 
He was not coming to do battle. He was not coming to conquer. If we say that, we would be so wrong. He came to fight the battle of battles, the war of all wars. He came to destroy the power of Satan and death. He came to break the reign of terror by Satan. He came to do battle and to free people from horrific slavery. So why the donkey? The answer is humility. In fighting that battle, the Son of God and Son of Man, the Prince from Heaven, would need to endure the utter abandonment of those men that were closest to Him. Remember? It's embarrassing. They ran for their lives. They deserted. Left Him alone. He would have to endure the ridicule and spittle of the Sanhedrin. He would have to endure the dismissive derision and and mocking of Herod. He would have to endure the injustice of Pilate, Pilate, a petty Roman government. He would have to endure the scorning laughter of ignorant Roman soldiers taunting him He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And here they are taunting him with a crown of thorns and a bloody flagellation. And then the real hell begins. He would feel the wrath of all of heaven, the justice of almighty God on the sin and guilt that he carried. Now, People, this is a son of God who could have said a word And the entire Roman Empire would have ceased to exist. He would know a humility no king had ever experienced. You see, the humble steed he rode into Jerusalem was indeed a battle stallion. It was the stallion of the humble It matched the battle he was waging. The Son of God riding a donkey. Oh, I would have loved to have been there. This was a sight that foretold Calvary. Heaven's seraphim, those great creatures, angels of glory, could not have imagined the Son of God on a donkey. They couldn't imagine the incarnation. But the Son of God, the warrior prince of heaven, on a donkey. They could not have imagined the Son of God and Son of Man on a hideous Roman cross. Read this week. This is Passion Week. This is Holy Week. Read this week the betrayal. Read in Matthew. Read in Luke. Read in John. Read in Mark. Read the betrayal the arrest, the trials, the beatings, the crucifixion. I've never seen such extreme humility. 
Why do we need to see his humility in such graphic detail? Is it just to empathize, just to appreciate what he did? Why do we need to see his humility? Because God calls us to practice that same extreme humility. He really does. We will read Philippians 2, 3 through 8. I hope you'll get your Bibles if you don't have one right now. Read that with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. This turns into a magnificent doxology, and that's usually how we see it. But every time I read it, I'm overwhelmed by the command, by the command that is there from God. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you get it? When Paul speaks to us about practicing humility, he says, look at the humility of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. He says, your attitude, your attitude, your attitude, John Sartell, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's incredible. It's impossible. That humility, that humility was voluntary. Do you understand that? These are not the gears of civilization, the gears of this world grinding a helpless Jesus. This is the Lord from heaven. This is the Prince of heaven. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He did this voluntarily. Jesus didn't have to endure the Sanhedrin or Herod or Pilate or the Roman soldiers or the crucifixion. He could have called the legions of heaven and put an end to this world. His suffering these indignities inflicted by evil was completely voluntary. He could have called. He could have spoken a word and put an end to all of it. Question. How much indignity would I suffer for Jesus? How much indignity would I suffer for Jesus? How much humility do I practice in considering others more significant than I am? Really? How much do I do that? 
How much humility do I show in my personal relations with my wife, with my children? How much humility do I show in restraining my anger? How much humility do I demonstrate? Here's a real question. How much humility do I demonstrate when I feel my rights have been trampled? Read this week. Read the arrest, the betrayal. Read the trials. Read what happened in that Passion Week leading up to the cross. Because we're called to that same humility. Chad Walsh was a 20th century college professor, teacher. He loved teaching in college. He himself was an author of poetry and prose that was recognized. He was recognized worldwide. Interesting, he was converted to Christ through the writings of C.S. Lewis. In fact, he wrote two books about Lewis, became a friend to Lewis. Walsh wrote a poem about Jesus on the cross. In that poem, in the midst of the taunting and jeering, and spittle, Jesus' eyes turn to anger. And he yanks out the nails. And he stomps off through the appalled crowd. Folks, loving our enemy is not automatic to our character. If it is to be practiced, it must be willed. The humility of Jesus is not automatic to our character. It must be willed. If we do not practice it in everyday relationships, how can we even imagine practicing such humility in the extreme times of trials? and crosses in our lives. Well, let's hear the conclusion of this matter of Jesus riding forth into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's a parallel passage in Revelation. You see, next time we see Jesus riding forth in Scripture, is in Revelation 19. Let's read that. Let's read it with the passion that it deserves. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse! Exclamation. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Didn't have that. With Jesus, it's entered Jerusalem on that donkey, did you? It's completely different. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the same king, the same ruler, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's no more donkey. He's riding a great war horse. This is not a humble Son of God and Son of Man going to a cross to save This is the Son of God and Son of Man bringing a final reckoning to His creation. The day of salvation is over. This is not Jesus going to Golgotha to save a thief. It's Jesus bringing every act of theft into absolute judgment. Make no mistake, the writer of Revelation meant for Jesus on the war horse to be a contrasting parallel to Jesus on the donkey. He meant for Jesus with the many crowns, the many diadems, to be a contrasting parallel with Jesus and the crown of thorns. He meant for Jesus' robe, stained with the blood of his enemies in Revelation 19, to be a contrasting parallel with Jesus' clothes and Jesus' body being spattered with his own blood at that flagellation and on the cross. The next time he rides, it won't be on a donkey and it won't be to save. When he returns, he's pictured on a war horse. He's coming to wage war. The time of salvation is over. He's coming to consummate all of history with a righteous reckoning, with a righteous judgment. This week, as I was writing this, I kept thinking of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. And we're not supposed to quote at this length, but I had to. And it will hold your interest. This is C.S. Lewis describing that great day. When Jesus rides forth, quote, God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play's over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole world, the natural universe, melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. 
something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible hollow into every creature. It will be too late. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. Now today, this moment, is our opportunity to choose the right side. God's holding back to give us that opportunity. That opportunity won't last forever. End quote. This Palm Sunday, if you hadn't made that decision, there's not a better time right now today. What if the Son of God had not become flesh? What if the incarnation had not happened? What if the Son of God had not laid aside His glory? What if there had been no Messiah, no birth in Bethlehem? What if there had been no miracles, no disciples, no donkey, no betrayal, no arrest, no trial, no cross, no Lamb of God, no resurrection? I will tell you what would be. There would still be the Son of God of Revelation 19 riding forth to execute the justice of God. God is just. He cannot be otherwise. On this Palm Sunday, know that the donkey represents the immense, incredible humility of Jesus. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It represents His riding forth to the battle of the cross, to the battle for salvation without which, unless that had happened, without which we could not be saved when the Son of God and Son of Man rides forth to judge. Amen.